This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And our topic for today is faith and work. As those of you who've been watching us regularly know, we've been uh, clipping away through a document called Theology That Works that's provided by the Kern Family Foundation. And my guest today is Greg Forrester, who is Executive Director for the Kern Family Foundation in relationship to the Faith and Work Initiative. I mean, I've started, stated his title exactly right, but I'm trying to get good at it. And uh, we're going through part four of this document today, which is available on the uh, Kern Family Foundation uh, website. And our goal is to kind of produce a commentary on this document to kind of give it some depth and 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 un- underscore the logic that's behind it. And today our topic is very, very important. It's the intersection or perhaps the lack of intersection between religious professionals, pastors and church leaders, and business leaders. And Greg, why don't you start us off by talking about um, kind of what the problem is or what the problem has been. Yes, you know, it's such a deep and multifaceted problem, it's hard to know where to begin. But there has been, uh, over the course of the last century, a significant gap relationally, operationally, functionally, uh, you name it, between uh, those who are engaged in uh, religious professional activity and those who are engaged in economic professional activity, not only among leaders, uh, but among people at all levels. Uh, sometimes the leaders are the most estranged, uh, but uh, really it's a, it's, it's a problem uh, from, the, from the top to the bottom. I think that uh, at, the, at the deepest level, there's a failure to acknowledge uh, the reality that Paul was talking about when he said that the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and the hand can't say to the eye that I don't need you, that uh, each of these groups has a tendency to view itself as uh, the the most important, the central. <laughs> the brain, the heart, and yeah, the soul. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the way I put it in the paper is uh, there's a failure to recognize that both groups bring uh, knowledge to the table. Uh, I've been influenced in this particular respect by Dallas Willard uh, and his analysis of how uh, people will respond and change the way they live based on who they think has knowledge. Hmm. And as I've meditated on that and looked at it in the world that we move in in, uh, in our program, uh, what I see is religious professionals uh, coming to the table with an unspoken assumption uh, that I'm the one with knowledge because I know the Bible very well, uh, and that, and I know theology, mm-hmm. or I know you know that world, and that gives me the deepest insight into the way the uh, the, the way the universe works. Meanwhile, uh, economic professionals will come to the table thinking I'm the one with knowledge because I know how things get done. 
Uh, and in the world uh, that economic professionals live in, you are not recognized as possessing knowledge if you don't uh, know how to produce results. Mm -hmm. That it is the, the people who accomplish things are recognized as having knowledge because that is the measurement of, uh, of whether you have knowledge. Whereas in, uh, in the world of uh, religious professionals and particularly in academia, which is where I, uh, my work is focused, uh, you, you are recognized as having knowledge if you are able to systematically articulate uh, a, a propositional body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and economic professionals, for the most part, even if they are very articulate people who can make a verbal presentation very well, they don't have a systematic propositional uh, uh, body of knowledge. That's not, that's not the way their world operates. So they're, so they're kind of traveling past each other. Uh, and, and can I just add what I, uh -huh. think is, what I think is underneath that layer, mm -hmm. often the two groups are really intimidated by one another. Interesting. And this attitude that I am the one who knows, I believe, is often caused by a deeper level of anxiety uh, that uh, pastors and religious professionals, I think, are intimidated uh, by, by business leaders, and I think business leaders are also intimidated by pastors because of this lack of communication, because of this lack of understanding, because they are both recognized in some sense as having authority but they don't understand one another's world, I think there's an intimidation factor involved, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what drives them often on both sides to come to the table with something of a chip on their shoulder. So, so we've got that as kind of the environment that, generally speaking, pastors and business people don't connect very well, or uh, let's deal with this perception that I think I've heard. I've sometimes heard that pastors don't really know how to relate to their business people in the church because they tend to view their business people in a certain way, and that gets in the way. So what what is that dynamic? Well, I think – and I think what you said is true and the reverse is also true, that bus business people don't know, often know how to relate to pastors. Uh, I think that uh, there is – on the one hand, a tendency to treat the, the particularly the business leaders primarily as sources of revenue for mm -hmm. the church, and that creates a lot of relational difficulties. Mm -hmm. I remember attending a conference uh, for Christian business leaders, and as I went around the room, uh, introduced myself, met people, people would ask me what I do, uh, and I said, I, te I teach the pastors that you are not a checkbook, <laughs> and I cannot tell you how many smiles and thank yous and how much affirmation I got from the business folks at that conference that they feel like their pastors, if they even have pastors, mm -hmm. uh, they feel like their pastors view them as a paycheck. Now, on the other side, there is often a failure among uh, economic professionals to recognize the need for the church and the the critical role of pastors. Uh, and that's why I add, if they even have pastors, because mm -hmm. many of them have simply dropped out of the local church. Mm -hmm. And I think we can call pastors, we can call upon pastors to say, hey, these guys are not checkbooks. But I think we can also call upon business leaders to say, hey, God uses the local church. The local church is pretty important. It's pretty central. Uh, you, sh you should show up. <laughs> you, know, you, should, you should be there. Yeah, so so we've so so we've kind of introduced the topic and kind of what the what the problem is in relationship to thinking about how pastors and business people work together, uh, and and you you open up this section of, of the theology it works by noting the distinction between 
the existence of faith work problems, which we've just acknowledged, uh, and the issue of addressing them in the right way. What gets us off on the right foot in terms of thinking about how to address these problems? One of the most common uh, things that I have found pastors re- reporting was helpful to them is to spend time in workplaces. Mm-hmm. I will very often, when I'm giving examples of things that churches do, one of the things that I will mention is pastors will go spend time in people's homes, mm-hmm. pastors will go spend time in hospitals, mm-hmm. pastors will go spend time in prisons. Uh, and if you ask them, why do you go to the home? Uh, they can articulate the reasons. Well, we need to see people in their context. We need to see how things work there. We pick up a whole lot in when we go to the home. We pick up a whole lot that we don't pick up if we're not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just simply say, "Well, then why not go to the workplace? Mm-hmm. Why not go to workplaces from time to time?" And you just see that light go off mm-hmm. over their uh, <laughs> over their heads. Oh, we've we've lost, you know, a critical context. And obviously you cannot go to everybody's workplace just as you cannot go to everybody's home unless you have a very small church. Mm-hmm. But going to some workplaces you will begin to pick up some of the context that there does there there is applicability beyond the specific mm-hmm. one specific workplace. You begin to understand that context pretty well. And it also uh, establishes, I think, uh, your uh, your credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, when the pastor starts to spend time in workplaces, people will see, oh, this is a person who's willing to come to my uh, to my context and ask, how can I be of help to you? Mm-hmm. You know, what could I what could I do that would be helpful to you in making your work? Uh, something that that you that is part of your faith life and honors God. How can I how can I help you with that? Uh, and I think uh, just on both sides, whether it's the pastor or the uh, or, or people from the economic world, uh, just spending spending time in the other's space. This this may be one reason business leaders, uh, large numbers of business leaders don't go to church is it's a space that doesn't belong to them, mm-hmm. uh, and they feel alienated from it. Hmm. Uh, and pastors, I think, feel that way about secular workplaces, if I may use that term. Uh-huh. Uh, we know that's a problematic term, mm-hmm. but uh, getting into one another's spaces, mm-hmm. I think, and is 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 by itself a self sacrificial act. So, so the point here is, is that you begin to build the relationships by which you can break down some of the barriers that that uh, that have perhaps been not even erected in some cases. They're just kind of there. I mean, they just the by the very different worlds that the two occupations uh, occupy. There's this this space and this distance that gets created that you really have to work to overcome the inertia. Uh, of having those spaces created to begin with. Well, and when we talk about family, uh, you can say maintaining the relationship requires effort and attention. Yes. And everybody will nod their head and say, <laughs> yes, we understand maintaining a relationship requires effort and attention. And you have to show some interest in what the other person is interested in. Yes, you really should take an interest in what the other person – well, you know, those lessons, again, don't just apply you know, to the home. We can mm-hmm. apply all of that. That uh, it, it doesn't require the erection of barriers. It only requires the Failure of effort. Okay, well, let's let's think about uh, uh, this relationship. What do theology? Why do theology and economics need each other? What what does each bring to the table that the other uh, needs? Well, uh, they are both asking the question 
from different angles, what does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. Uh, both uh, the discipline of economics and the discipline of theology are both speaking really to the question of what it means to be human. Uh, they bring different sources of knowledge mm-hmm. to the table, both of which are necessary. Uh, I'll give you an example. One of the prominent commands in the Bible is use honest weights and measures, mm-hmm. right? And you find that in the Old Testament. Boy, mm-hmm. God is real serious about weights and measures. Use honest weights and measures. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, but what is uh, what are weights and measures? How do marketplaces use weights and measures? How do marketplaces rely on weights and measures in economic exchange? Uh, what were the weights and measures in the period of time when that uh, biblical text was written? And what are weights and measures in the modern economy? I'll tell you, the internet is uh, just incredibly overturning our assumptions about how you measure things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what, what is a measurement? What is a weight? What is a standard? Uh, these are difficult, complex issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the econ- this, I'm just giving you one example, but yeah. the economists can come to the table and talk about, all right, uh, we know that we need to use honest weights and measures. What does that mean in the global economy? What does it mean for a company with a supply chain that may be spread out across the world? Mm-hmm. What does it mean for a company that might do business in virtually every culture? There are businesses now that do business uh, in hundreds of cultures. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent is honesty in, in the area of weights and measures culturally contextualized? And to what, ex- to what extent are there absolute standards that apply across all cultures? Uh, but to what extent do you need to be paying attention to local cultural context when you ask how do we do honest weights and measures? Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to be very blunt, you need economic and business people mm-hmm. wrestling with those questions because they know uh, how the marketplace is operating mm-hmm. in, in all of these places. And that's just one very small example. Mm-hmm. Uh, now now go through the Bible and find all of the uh, things that speak to economic realities, and it's pervasive. Uh, you'll and, and for all of them, if we want to understand the original context, we need economic history mm-hmm. to talk about, I mean, just... I spend a significant amount of time in my line of work talking about the economy of first century Palestine. Mm. And I'm very surprised at how many theologians uh, have never really asked, what was the economy of first century Palestine like, and how might that inform the writing of the Bible? Mm. Uh, it's actually a very important question. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, uh, and, and so we need economic history. And then if we're going to apply any of this to contemporary context, we need to know what's going on. Uh, and and those, are, those are questions that e- those are things that economists and business people can bring to the table. And then, uh, as in any discipline, in addition to empirical knowledge, there is a, systematiz- a systematization that takes place. So the discipline of economics, uh, in gathering all of this information, has learned to ask certain questions systematically. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we come to a place where I've already mentioned we bring the contents of the Bible to the table, and theology obviously brings that to the table, but theology can also bring to the table uh, a, an independent evaluation of what questions is the discipline of economics asking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think similarly, the discipline of economics can bring its systematic questions to the table and ask what does the, ask the theologians, uh, have you considered these questions? Mm-hmm. Uh, in your reading of the Bible. So I will, uh, for example, I will ask theologians, uh, how often do you see market exchange 
mentioned in biblical texts. And when they go to the biblical text and look, uh, you know, where do we see exchange, buying and selling, mm -hmm. occur? They will discover that it is more prominent than they had they had really <laughs> appreciated. Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So we each we each bring data mm -hmm. to the table. The theologians bring the the revelatory data of the Bible to the table, whereas the economists and business people bring empirical data about economic systems to the table. But we also each bring a systematic set of questions that we have been trained by our disciplines uh, to ask, and w the disciplines need to ask one another those questions. Interesting. So so some people would say, well, you know the world of theology, that's about ideas, and business is about action, and so those two don't, don't touch very much. I mean, after all, we just talked about spaces, and generally, people, generally speaking, most people think of those spaces as completely apart from one another. I mean, if we did a Venn diagram, business would be over here in the world, that's the Monday to Friday deal, and, and the professional religious space is over here, and that's primarily a, a Sunday deal and maybe a Wednesday night if you're really, really dedicated. <laughs> those are the special Christians. Exactly right. And so and, and so these two worlds don't really really touch and they're completely different. Uh, so so I, that obviously is not the model you're working with. No, and in fact, uh, time and time again I come back to challenging that is really the center of almost everything that we're doing. Challenging this idea that the economy is about uh, material things and action. Mm -hmm. Theology is about the soul, the spirit, ideas. Uh, this dualism between body and spirit uh, is a major problem throughout human the history of human culture. This is one of the huge things that Christianity wrestles with, is to challenge the natural tendency of human culture to dichotomize between body and spirit. Uh, the, the, in the Christian view, the human being is both body and spirit mm -hmm. integrated, uh, and they can't be separated, although they, they can be meaningfully distinguished, but they must not be separated. Uh, if you take a materialistic view of economics, you're going to end up with uh, one or another kind of very dehumanizing economic system. That's where econ economics is basically about the paycheck and the money and what it gives me. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are both right-wing and left-wing versions of materialistic economics. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about that in the last podcast. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, you can also take what I somewhat loosely call a Gnostic view now, I know this is not exactly what the original Gnostics are about, but a, a view that privileges the spirit over the body so strongly that we really begin to ignore material reality when we talk about economics. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So money, what you do with money really doesn't matter. So, And because it doesn't matter, uh, the only place where it counts is where you invest it for spiritual things, because spiritual things matter. Is that what you're saying? That would be one form of it. Yeah. Another form would be uh, magical thinking about Money and work and and economic systems. So that prosperity and that you, kind of stuff. Prosperity gospel. Yeah. I I am not the first person to observe that there are major 
overlaps between prosperity gospel and Gnostic theology. That's a that's a. If you look into the you know the the serious theological critique of the prosperity gospel, this is a common refrain that there is a such a uh, superior emphasis on things of the spirit over the material world that the material world is essentially manipulated in magical ways hmm. uh, by spiritual uh, reality. Now we don't want to uh, we don't want to over we don't want to overreact against that into the opposite error mm-hmm. uh, but it is important not to indulge in magical thinking about economic <laughs> realities we we are spiritual creatures but we are also material creatures there is such a thing as human nature there are real boundaries on the economic world interesting so so um, so i take it that we've kind of flipped over and this is what happens in the chapter in the section as well and that is that really what you're talking about is an undeveloped theology of creation that helps to cr- create this divide? I think so. As I say in the paper, on the one hand, the discipline of economics, uh, having separated itself from theology first and then later even from moral philosophy, uh, the discipline of economics has become very materialistic and proceeds from materialistic presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, I think the discipline of theology, uh, having with equal and opposite vigor distanced itself from the study of the world uh, and from the empirical uh, and scientific disciplines in the last few centuries, has an underdeveloped theology of creation, hmm. and as a result, becomes a sort of hothouse for uh, all kinds of inadequate views of work and economics because uh, that that topic is not studied in a serious way. Uh, and if you come to the Bible without an adequate uh, mental framework for thinking about an issue, what you end up doing is simply picking and choosing a few proof texts unconsciously mm-hmm. that uh, give a veneer of theological approval to whatever your pre, you know your predisposition is mm-hmm. uh, when people come to the Bible and come away thinking well you know the Bible teaches this economic theory or that economic theory it's not because they're dishonest people it's simply because they haven't taken the time to carefully connect how we study the Bible mm-hmm. with how we wrestle with economic questions and that is partly because we've been equipped with economic thinking that has no place for theology, but it's also because we've been connected with, we've been equipped with theological thinking that has no place for economics. Oh wow! So we we got a double problem. Well, we're not thinking small. As we, when, we, when we take on these problems, we don't take on small problems. We're yeah. taking on big problems. So, so the point is, is that if your theology of creation has a ha, has a place for work work in relationship to service, work in relationship to ministry, work in relationship to calling. You know, three categories we often associate with church ministry, but we don't necessarily often associate with a nine-to-five job. That has a way of redefining how we look at work. Definitely. Uh, it also redefines how we look at pastoral ministry mm-hmm. and, and relig- professional religious activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one of the central topics that I find myself uh, discussing with people again and again is taking this perspective on work implies a pretty serious rethinking of what it, what is the mission of the pastor, what mm-hmm. is the task of the pastor. Uh, one of the images that gets used very frequently in the faith and work movement is that church is not the front line of the spiritual war, mm. the, the local church. The local church is not the front line of the spiritual war. The local church is the base camp 
huh. of the of the spiritual army uh-huh. where you get equipped and repair you know where you go to the infirmary if you're yeah. injured uh-huh. uh, and you know all of the everything that the soldiers do when they're in their camp mm-hmm. not when they're fighting the war it's it's out in the other six days of the week where the spiritual war is being fought and unfortunately we have uh, too often in many cases we think about the life of the local church as the center of the action it is a center of much action but there is the the war to live Christian lives and to extend the kingdom is being fought seven days a week, not one day a week. So when we get a benediction in the church and the pastor and effects says, well, we'll see you here next Sunday, it's like, well, what happened to the rest of the week? Yes, that's a gap. <laughs> uh, we're seeding that ground yeah. if, if we think that way. Interesting. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit here because one of the issues that comes up in the, in the section as we've laid this groundwork about about work being for service and service being something where you care about uh, all people in all situations and all spaces, if I can say it that way, that means that you're also going to be concerned about uh, about the care of the poor and how they what what part they occupy in the in the economic pie. So, so I'll just ask it straight out: uh, How does care for the poor enter into the conversation, and has and should the church uh, opt out of such care? Well, the church should never opt out of caring for the poor and the marginalized, uh, and that's non-negotiable. It's so clear in the Bible that there's just really no doubt of it, and the history of the Christian faith uh, uh, resounds with testimony that it is central to the task of the church to have a care for those particularly who don't have natural advocates on mm-hmm. their own. Uh, the church is to be the advocate for those who have no other advocate. And uh, we cannot take simply a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps approach. Uh, we are to be active in uh, doing whatever we can that will contribute to the flourishing of the poor. I believe the difficulty, though, is that we have become in many ways captive to materialistic thinking in, mm. in how we help the poor, uh, that we, we think only in terms of money and resources. Uh, now money and resources matter, they're important, and I don't want to fall into Gnostic thinking like, uh, <laughs> like I was saying before. Uh, and it is, it is absolutely right for the church, uh, and not exclusively the church, to provide material help for those in need. However, that is really uh, dealing with symptoms in most cases, uh, and the causes of uh, the causes of need really have to be addressed if we want to be helping the poor in a long-term, deeply effective way. Our goal should be to get people out of poverty, not to simply hand them resources as they remain in poverty. Mm-hmm. And the primary uh, the primary issue is broken relationships, Mm -hmm. broken relationships with God, broken family relationships is a huge issue. Uh, Multi-generational poverty is intimately connected to the breakdown of family relationships. People don't learn the behaviors that they need to to flourish, to, uh, to support themselves economically. Uh, And broken relationships lead to addiction, all sorts of things, you name it, uh, that, again, keep people in poverty. And on the one hand, we shouldn't just wag our fingers and say, well, you know, start behaving yourself. That That's not a grace-based approach. That's mm-hmm. a law-based approach, and the church is a grace-based institution 
the law matters, uh, but but we don't want to leave grace out of the picture if we're going to be doing it in a Christian way. However, we do need to be helping people reach a place where relationships are healing, where uh, behaviors are changing, addictions are being uh, uh, removed, where people who are not working are being helped to reach uh, the development that they need so that they can be working. Uh, and Christians can encourage entrepreneurship that creates jobs, so the jobs are there. Uh, one of the exciting things that we're seeing happen in a number of places is uh, uh, Christian churches and Christian business people working together to promote entrepreneurship that intentionally reaches out to those who are not working to help connect them to work uh, so that those who are not working will work. And that is not simply a matter of creating businesses. It also requires healing relationships relationships, uh, confronting behavioral issues, uh, but you know the whole package. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember uh, in the context of dealing with poverty, I wish I could remember who it was who said this, but somebody said, uh, the only effective place to intervene in a vicious circle is everywhere at once. <laughs> because if you intervene in only one place in the vicious circle, you're just going to be defeated by the other factors that are acting onto the onto that, that part of the circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a vicious circle situation where one problem is feeding another problem and that problem feeds the first problem, you've got to attack everything at once. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, many of our uh, traditional anti-poverty programs aren't doing that. But I am encouraged to see a lot of new approaches emerging, and I think that's only going to grow. So um, I, I'm, I'm reminded as I hear you talk of a book that I, that I know we've both read um, called When Helping Hurts. And uh, it's a. In fact, we haven't talked much about resources as we've moved through these podcasts, and that it certainly is one to recommend. Um, and in its thesis is that there are ways to help that that they may help in the short term, but they really don't deal with the long term impact of uh, of why the person is caught in the in the cycle that they're in. And then there's helping that really helps as opposed to simply hurting. Um, might you help us to get that distinction between helping that helps and helping that hurts? Yes, and I'll admit forthrightly that I've been greatly influenced by uh, Corbett and Fickert in, mm-hmm. in my description of the problem. They focus on relationships as mm-hmm. the key, uh, and I think that's exactly right. They talk about the many different relationships that human beings are made to have, uh, a relationship with God, a relationship with others, a relationship mm-hmm. with yourself, mm-hmm. uh, which is your internal character, mm-hmm. and a relationship with the world, mm-hmm. so how you manage uh, how you manage resources and work. And they describe in the book how coming in with material aid uh, can actually prevent the repair, not only does not address the repair of broken relationships, but can actually prevent the repair of broken relationships or even break them further if people become dependent on your aid rather than depending on one another. Human beings are made to be interdependent. They're made to be uh, dependent on one another in right relationship, mm-hmm. not to be dependent on uh, a relationship-free res- you know, resource uh, provider. Mm-hmm. Uh, so family members are interdependent. Uh, and, and if the household is interdependent in the right way, that household will not be dependent on exter- external uh, uh, infusions of resources m- normally. Yeah. Uh, the, in fact, I think uh, you can see in the uh, Old Testament 
uh, law and prophets and the whole literature uh, that the desired normal state is households that are economically self-sufficient mm -hmm. because they they are interdependent mm -hmm. and everyone is making a contribution to the common good of the household and similarly a community of such households uh, is interdependent through economic exchange uh, and and becomes and flourishes by 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 that method so um, if I remember correctly in the book, there's the distinction between, you know, someone's in crisis, uh, a disaster hits or whatever. There's that immediate relief of simply providing material goods to kind of help the emergency situation and get them to the point where they were back where they were. And then, and then what often happens with a lot of relief efforts, the relief effort ends and that's, that's it. Or, or it's the poor person who simply gets the handout. They get the meal and that's it. But that doesn't deal with two other phases, if you will, of, of responsiveness that, that really complete the cycle. And one is, I don't know quite how to word this because I've forgotten exactly how they word it, but something to the effect of, you know, you begin to create the skills and, and, and do the education and, and supply the capabilities to where a person can move to the point where they can, can take care of themselves and they aren't dependent. And that real helping that helps is a, is a help that gets the person out of the mire where they are, out of the cycle that they're in, and works towards, I mean, the technical term when you're doing this at a national level or at a civic level is development. But, um, uh, it, it, but it really is the development of those independent skills that's important. And that requires uh, a multiple levels of support. That requires business support to supply the jobs or to supply the skills that are necessary. And it requires a, a family and or community support to, to come alongside the person until they get to where they can sustain themselves. Is, is that the kind of relational dimension we're talking about? Absolutely. Uh, and I think it's important, once again, to stress that in those emergency situations, coming in and just flooding people with material resources mm -hmm. is the right thing to do. You know, if there has been a hurricane that's knocked down everybody's house, yeah, you come in and you start to rebuild their houses mm -hmm. for them. Uh, but then uh, the contrast is between that and I was uh, I was visiting a seminary where they have a long-term relationship uh, with a uh, an impoverished community not far from them and the seminary has a long-term commitment to go in and do ministry there uh, and in the past that's been done in the, sort of the traditional way and it, it got to the point where the local residents in this community would actually joke about uh, what color is your house going to be painted this year uh, and, and that's a that's a, just a start startling testimony uh -huh. uh, to the inadequacy of merely material approaches if they're iterated over time, mm -hmm. right? That community did not have a hurricane every year mm -hmm. that they, so that they needed people to come in and do housework every year. Right. Uh, I think that the, uh, the other two steps involve uh, personal development of people so that their relationships are healed, their behaviors are addressed, their material needs are also being addressed, uh, and that they're, they're, getting, they're moving toward a place. And then the, the third level is 
is whole communities mm-hmm. are often systematically often have systematic problems mm-hmm. that need to be addressed, and that can range uh, everything from the normalization of broken relationships, mm-hmm. which we're dealing with in a major way, uh, to even uh, policies and practices by by powerful people to come in and just if if anybody's building anything and having success, they'll swoop in and take it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hernando de Soto, you may want to talk about resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hernando de Soto wrote a book called The Mystery of Capital, uh, in which he sent graduate students to the poorest communities around the world and found that one of the major obstacles that keeps people in poverty is just injustice that wealthy and powerful people will come in and take whatever you build mm. so nobody builds anything. Yeah. Of course they don't. Why yeah. would they? Uh, and so that's, a, that's, that's a key insight to have mm. is that, uh, th- that, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, there's, there's a lot of complex systems that need to be addressed. Um, one way of thinking about it is in terms of the old adage, give a man to fish, mm-hmm. uh, and he eats for a day, but teach him to fish, uh, and, and he'll, he'll, fit, he'll eat for a lifetime. But then, as uh, Bob Lupton, author of another book, Toxic Charity, uh, said, then you have to start thinking about where the lake comes from. Yeah. Uh, that people, you can, you can teach people to fish, but if there's no lake, then you have a whole bigger problem, <laughs> That's exactly right. uh, and and you can't you can't come in forever and provide lakes for people. Eventually, so that's the development of resources. Yes, the larger development yeah. issue yeah. Uh, that communities have got to produce indigenous entrepreneurial business creation activity, which is difficult, and you can't just snap your fingers and make it happen. Uh, but I think that's I think that's why God raises up the church. I think it's one reason God sends the church out into the world uh, is because the natural human cultural system is not going to be concerned with that kind of difficult challenge. Uh, but but by God's grace, we can be and are. So so the church and business leaders can can rally alongside one another to provide the variety of resources that are necessary. The business can provide the job expertise and the job creation potential and, and, and resources, and the church can provide the personal counseling and direction that can help the system th- fix itself so that you aren't just painting the house every year and nothing has changed inside the house. Yes. In social science, we have a concept called social capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, pastors have enormous social capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have relationships and standing in the community that are phenomenal valuable in addressing these kinds of systematic issues. It's not that the pastor has to go do everything, Mm -hmm. uh, but the pastor can get all the right people around the table. Mm -hmm. And boy, does that help. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Join us next week for part two. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Thank you.